podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Fire for them, fire for them. If you're looking for that 35 bag umbrella and all damn thing there, keep it locked with this Unomics podcast. 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 Yo, what's going on people? This is the Dishonomic Podcast. I hope you have had a fantastic week. You heard from me a few days ago. Well, if you haven't, you better. Um, a podcast episode 247, podcasting party and PT. And with Yus, that is Big Man Yus. Fun fact, one of my friends thought his name was Big Man Anus, which is ridiculous. But Yusuf is a very learned young man who's... <laughs> he's just done a lot of stuff. He's worked in marketing, he's worked in music, he's a currently an entrepreneur, he's a PT, he's on events, he's big in pod- podcasting, he started to go into producing now. So it was a very interesting podcast speaking from all those different realms, speaking like influencing with men, speaking personal training, podcasting, becoming more vulnerable on your podcast building a niche audience, Patreon, a lot of interesting discussions, a really, really fun podcast, so make sure you check that episode out. And yeah, any questions you like have you want me to answer, I want to start trying to answer questions on the midweek pods on the Tuesday ones. So any questions, just tweet me at underscore nomics, use the hashtag, um, Dysonomics hashtag, or you can DM me on Insta, Dysonomics Pods, or Dysonomics, or on Twitter, underscore nomics, or you can just email hello at dysonomics.com whichever one floats your boat. I think I'm gonna try and create like some anonymous inbox type thing. So in case you just didn't want me to know where your questions come from, and I respect that. Some people might be a bit shy, a bit private or whatever. But anyway, this week's pod, I thought it would be good to look at countries. Now, obviously a lot of countries in the world have, are still in a developing stage. They, they might not have the most um, developed economies but you also have countries that are pretty developed and some of them are kind of like historically prosperous countries the likes of France Germany uh, England obviously United States to a lesser degree they've been about four five hundred years old but some countries who are also very developed are relatively new countries they're relatively young some of these countries some of our parents might be older than these countries or definitely some of our grandparents are so I thought let me look at two places United Arab Emirates and Singapore because I remember having a discussion about the NHS and this is how this thought process came to my mind was um, I was like well, no not me uh, shout out Dr Lee who's been in the podcast so, been in the podcast so many times he was like if the NHS was such a good system how come none of the newer countries have adopted this system and that made me think about the newer countries who are doing really well and I thought oh Maybe I'll start a pack on how to be a good country. So that's the nature of this pod. I want to go over Singapore as well as the UAE, speak on how they had a claim to fame or claim to prosperity, how to turn the fortunes of their countries around overnight. When I say overnight, it's in decades, but that's very short for countries. And yeah, let me know what you think. Hi, it's MXM and listen to the Dysonomics podcast because it's lit. Because it's lit. Because it's lit. Yo, what's going on, people? Hope you've had a fantastic week. This is episode 248 of the Dysonomic Podcast. Start a pack for a rich nation. How UAE and Singapore got rich. So I'm going to start with the United Arab Emirates first. And this is something I've researched quite a lot. I've spoken to quite a lot of people about. So 
United Arab Emirates. Quite a lot of people think that Dubai is a country, and I, for a period of time in my life, so did I. I want to do a bit more research, and I realized they're actually part of the United Arab Emirates, also known as UAE. I thought the UAE was separate initially. So if you're not that great on geography, even though I'm pretty decent, don't worry about it. So how do the fortunes of United Emirates change? Well, initially they were like their own um, principalities. Um, they were owned by the British many a year ago, many a decade ago, and they were not the most prosperous of regions. But what was a catalyst for change? Well, over half a century ago, the UAE found oil. But what's crazy is that although they found oil and lots of it, it is not their main source of income. Oil, just like Denmark, was a catalyst to their to their current success now. So back in the days, Dubai was known for being a small fishing port, small fishing town, but they started to become more and more prosperous with their maritime activities. And that's like ships in their mandate, yeah? This is because its location was close to Iran and access to the entrance of the Persian Gulf. And we're gonna see similarities with Singapore in a bit. This made it a key merchant, merchant spot. So this is gonna be attractive for people who are merchants, pretty simple, right? And this developed over the years for, as like another entry and a gateway to prosperity for the UAE. Um, so now if we look at Dubai, um, although Dubai is not the capital, Abu Dhabi is, which we'll speak about a bit, um, but all of us have heard and known and loved Dubai. There's a place called the Jebel Ali ports, right? And the Jebel Ali port is the is arguably the most valuable asset for United Arab Emirates. And it is the busiest port in the whole of the Middle East. So this is, of course, fantastic for business. You're going to have a lot of economic activity going on in ports. But what makes Jebel Ali region so so crucial is Jaffsa, right? And Jaffsa is simply the Jabal Ali free zone. Jaffsa. Every time I hear Jaffsa, I think of Jaffa, Jaffa, and Iron Wadi. So the Jabal Ali free zone. This is a 57 kilometer, 57 kilometer square foot kilometer, or 57 kilometer square foot region, which is an economic free zone, and it is the world's largest free zone. This is one of 20 plus um, economic free zones in Dubai. And in this free zone, you see um, tax breaks, costume duty benefits, and no owner restrictions um, regardless of origin. So there's no restrictions on you being owner coming from Japan or Nigeria or the United Kingdom and having ownership of a business there where like, there may be in other countries. There's so many tax breaks. Like Dubai have only just introduced VAT. Didn't have no VAT before. Didn't have no income tax before. Didn't have no corporation tax. But I think there's a slight, let's say, corporation tax coming in next year. And even that is significantly cheaper than the majority of developed nations in the world. So basically, this is a free area of economic activity for free. We're not coming to grab some money from you. Lot. You lot do your thing. And there's more than 20 of these regions in Dubai. And they, that is super duper crucial for the prosperity of Dubai and the United Arab Emirates as we know it today. There are thousands of companies within the Jafsa zone, which, and this Jafsa zone accounts for almost 20% of foreign direct investment in Dubai. So almost one in five, almost one in five of investments in Dubai occurs in the Jafsa zone. There's over 150,000 employees 
and $80 billion of non-oil foreign trade occurs in the JASTA zone. So that is what this zone is contributing in terms to the economy of Dubai and of course UAE, $80 billion, that's phenomenal. This counts for about 21% of the gross domestic product of Dubai. So effectively, in this JASTA zone where economic activity can go on pretty much regardless for free it has generated 80 billion dollars worth of non-oil trade so they're diversifying themselves away from oil which is obviously heavy resource heavy and it occurs for one in five of the outputs of dubai pretty impressive now if you look at the makeup of dubai about 11.5% of, not the makeup of Dubai, sorry. If you look at the ethnic makeup of the United Arab Emirates, about 11.5% as of 2018 of, of the population are actually Emiratis. So imagine England and only one in, just over one in 10 um, people living in England are actually English. That's bonkers. The majority of the country, so 88.5% are from ex expatriate workers people who have come in from other regions to come and work. The largest group of non-UAE um, nationals are South Southern Asians, so 59.4%, including people from India, 38%, Bangladesh, 9.5%, Pakistan, 9.4%. And then you've got Egyptians, 10%, Filipinos, um, 6%. And these people come in to work. Now, a lot of the buy success is predicated on like the manual labor and the long hours in crawling conditions a lot of these Southern Asians have come in to work for. Dubai has built up this whole infrastructure in next to no time. And the working conditions were not good. And after a lot of international backlash around 2017, they introduced some rights for these employees where they don't have to work seven days a week. They now get one day off. They get 30 days of holiday and so on and so forth. But this was the springboard to allow United Arab Emirates to grow so quick. Um, and this cheap and this cheap workforce was fundamental. So yeah, so the so the Arab Emirates is a very very intriguing place. Imagine the majority of people living and working there are not your actual people. They're not Emiratis, and this is what was fundamental to the success of the United Arab Emirates. Guys, we've seen so many people make ridiculous money from crypto. So many of my friends, they're not bringing me in. I'm not happy about that. But did you know it's also easy for you to do the same? The Copy My Crypto membership site shows you the coins that YouTuber James McMahon personally holds and allows you to copy him. It's like having a big brother who knows what he's doing. You don't need to know a thing about crypto or to invest. You simply just do what he does. Kind of like my little brothers. They just copy me. Everything I wear, they copy. All the music I listen to, they copy. Now they're seen as the cool kids. It's a scam. So let me tell you more about James. He runs the Crypto with James YouTube channel, which despite heavy censorship, has over 17,000 subs and over a million views. Since March 2020, he has told his viewers to buy 26 crypto coins. Had you put 100 bucks into each one, you will now be worth over $66,000. I don't know why James didn't hit me up himself. <laughs> of the 26 coins, his pick of the year, a coin called Phantom, is currently up over 440 times for when he said. 440 times. Bloody hell. 
That one call alone has retired a couple people, including people in their 20s and 30s. Remember, this is public knowledge. You can go on YouTube and verify this yourself. So don't think that this is a big scam. You can go check. Um, so if you'd like to join the 1,300 members who copy James, then what you just do is to stop what you're doing and head over instantly to copy my crypto. That's copy mycrypto.com forward slash disu. So the fact you listen to Dissonomics, you know how to support Disu. That's D I S U. You'll not only find proof of everything I said, but my listeners get full access for just a dollar. Which is like, what, 75p? If you listen in the UK, easy peasy. You won't find this anywhere else. You'll find this offer anywhere else, but you need to move quick because it's offer ends soon. You can't come and DM me on Instagram or Twitter. Oh my God, this offer's gone. So that's copy my crypto dot com forward slash d-i-s-u so that's copymycrypto.com forward slash d-i-s-u don't take this offer lightly he's a real deal go visit the site right now asap now this is super interesting because dubai's ruler the united emirates they made a conscious decision and it was a gamble to invest the oil profits in making Dubai, Abu Dhabi, everywhere, a business hub, an attractive place for foreign investment. And so they invested heavily into infrastructure and to all these things. And it was, it was a big gamble to make. Not, maybe not gamble is the right word, but it was a huge investment to make that many would have just, many countries just kind of rest in their laurels and just kind of focus heavily on the oil. But this paid off massive, massive dividends for Dubai. Now, Dubai has a lot of illustrious businessmen, celebrities, and so on and so forth, people living there. So in 2021, Koha estimated that 20 billionaires put property in Dubai that year and looks looks habitat Sotheby's international realty had seen around a 300% increase in business compared to the same period of 2010 2020 and I quote Dubai the top financial center in the Middle East is also one of the safer cities in the region and a popular des- destination for migrating high net worth individuals and wealth and wealthy expats said wealth intelligence firm New World Health News report like this just shows that the UAE, and especially Dubai, had achieved its objective. They've now become a place attract, attractive for foreign direct investment and high net worth individuals because of things like the 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 Jafsal zone. Dubai is Dubai is very clear. The crime is very low. Everything seems new. Like it's well governed. People are safe. Healthcare, the healthcare system is very good. Um, according to Nike Frank's uh, wealth report, Dubai is the fifth most important city in the world for what for the ultra wealthy, overtaking cities such as Shanghai, Miami, and Paris. This shows how much of a fantastic job they've done. Bearing in mind, mid in the in the mid twentieth century, it was just no man's land. Really, nothing was really going on. It wasn't a powerful country. Now, what also makes Dubai so appealing is that it's location, right? I spoke about the ports, but also because of where it's situated within the Middle East, two thirds of the world can be reached within eight hours flying time from Dubai. Dubai um, DXB, um, Dubai, Dubai airport was one of the busiest airports in the world. 
they did their thing. They really, really, really did their thing. So yeah, the, also the average person, so I forgot to even give you something. The average person living in UAE has net assets of $99,000, which, um, which is well above the worldwide average. Now I'm sure if we look to the median, it might not be as low because a lot of, there's a lot of um, lower class people working manual jobs. But when you look at the services sector, the business sector, there's a lot of wealthy people living in Dubai. So yeah, that's how the United Arab Emirates did it. How about Singapore? Well, Singapore was originally part of Malaysia. Yeah. And then Singapore, and if you look at Singapore as a region itself, it is a tiny country with a lack of natural resource, right? You can drive from one side of uh, Singapore to the other one hour. It kind of reminds me of Mykonos, right? However, they do have some things going for them. Singapore sits in the middle of a trade route which connects Asia and Europe. That is super, super fundamental for global trade. Hence why, of course, the UK came in. <laughs> so the UK came in early. The UK started dibbling dabbling in the 18th century. By the late 1800s, Singapore was a British colony. Singapore still kept close ties with Britain since 1965, which was the year of their independence. And this and keeping close ties with the UK let the world know they are open for business. And since this independence, the GDP per capita of Singapore has grown 125 times. That is phenomenal. It is very rare for humanity to go from poverty to prosperity, similar with the United Arab Emirates, but even more prevalent in um, Singapore because they don't have the, as the same level of um of expats dominating the population. And what's key with Singapore is also government policy. Just like we saw in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, government policy is key. And one of Singapore's first government agency's actions was to provide affordable housing for the labor force. Before the labor force, it was techie. There were strikes, there was poor working conditions. Like it was long, but, but the government was smart enough to see this. Remember, as they got liberated from British rule, a lot of Singapore was kind of more, you know what I mean, more huts. It wasn't built infrastructure, loads of housing, blocks of house, houses and flats and all that type of stuff. It was more rural, right? Well, the, the Controversial Land Acquisition Act enabled the government to buy land cheaply. Right? A lot of Singapore, as I said, were slums before independence. So now, because the government now had the power to buy land cheaply they were able to redevelop and make loads and loads of housing now if you look at in 1960s about nine percent of the population lived in public housing where you look at it now more than 80 percent live in public housing imagine 80 percent of londoners living in public housing bloody impossible right now, also, now you've got people who are unable to have shelter over their heads. You've also got increasing employee, um, employer rights, which led to strikes diminishing severely. So now you are, you are equipping your workforce with the tools to succeed, the environment to succeed. There also was a great increase in FDI, foreign direct investments. This was due to via tax incentives. Of course, if you make it tax 
beneficial to do business and live here, you're going to attract people's money. We've seen it with United Arab Emirates. So the tax um, incentives helped the country helped the country's economy grow and it helped reduce unemployment. Now, unemployment in, in the 1950s, so 1959, it was 14 percent. It went all the way down to 4.5% in the 1970s. That is a monumental switch in just over 15 years. 14% to 4.5. By the 1980s, Singapore got its manufacturing game on. Now you've got all the workers patterned, you've got them homed, all that type of stuff. They became the world's biggest producer of hard drive disks. And you know how important hard drive disks are for the global economy. But what's interesting is that manufacturing is now not nowhere near as important as it was in that period of time. Manufacturing now only makes up about 20% of the output of Singapore. What Singapore, what Singapore also had to do with was privatisation of public government-owned companies. We've seen it in all places we've seen in the UK, we saw it, I spoke about it in Russia, but the Russian one, those is still. Um, so companies like Singtel became privatized to make them more efficient and competitive on the global market. And then from, and then when you look at the year 2000 onwards, the service industries like finance, insurance were further liberalized, which calls for further economic growth. Now, if we look at the, the service-based industry, accounted for 24% of output in 1985. And as of 2017, it became 70%. Singapore have now moved away from being a manufacturing-based economy to a service-based economy, like a lot of Western Europe and the United States. Multinational companies were like, okay, we see what's going on. We're seeing a we're seeing a good work, a good labor market there. We're seeing beneficial um, tax incentives and kind of somewhat liberalized financial markets. We're going to start setting up shop here. And just like that, Singapore started to become the regional headquarters based for a lot of company, multinational companies, which of course naturally pushed further, further investment into Singapore. Now, by some metrics, Singapore is one of the easiest place to do business. The second best place in the world to be precise. So it's the world's second most open economy according to Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom, as well as the world's second most pro-business regime by the World Bank's Doing Business Report. But what's interesting about this is that, again, most Singaporeans don't feel rich. So I was looking at the Credit Suisse's Global Wealth Report in 2021, and Singapore is actually the 10th richest country in the world. Now, think about it. If <laughs> only in the 1960s you're in the mud, fast forward, what, 60 years, you're now in the top 10. You ain't mind than that. So according to the report, the average wealth per adult is approximately $333,000 at the end of 2022, at the end of 2020. However, if you look at the median wealth per adult, Singapore is further down, still great, but further down at 80, at 20th at $86,000. Now, what's the difference between average wealth per adult and medium wealth? So the, the way the average wealth per adult is worked out is that you take the total amount of wealth in the country and they divide the amount by the amount of people in the country. That's how you get the average, the mean. However, the issue with this is that 
if 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 a small group of people are really 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 wealthy and there's like over a hundred thousand millionaires in singapore that's going to inflate the overall average. It's not going to be indicative of everybody else. So let's say 80% of Singaporeans have a wealth of, let's say, 60K, but 20% of the riches have a wealth of like a billion. That's going to inflate the average. And the average is not going to reflect the 80% of the population. Now, if you look at the median, that's looking at the person in the middle. Right, so if you take 10 people, you pick out the fifth one. You look at the fifth one, for example, right? Simple. So that way you don't get bamboozled by a small group of people either bringing the overall number down dramatically or, or up dramatically. So, yeah, so let's look at the countries. I'm sure you people want to know who are the top 10 and 20, who are the top 20 in terms of wealth, medium wealth and mean wealth. So... Here's a top 20 of median wealth, right? You've got Australia at number one at two, 326,000. Belgium, in fact, let me just tell one to 20. Number one, Australia. Number two, Belgium. Number three, Hong Kong. Number four, New Zealand. Number five, Denmark. Six, Switzerland. Seven, Netherlands. Eight, France. Nine, United Kingdom. Bah, bah. Ten, Canada. Eleven, Japan. 12 Italy, 13 Norway, 14 Spain, 15 Ireland, 16 Taiwan, 17 Austria, 18 Sweden, 19 Korea, 20 Singapore. So yeah, that's by median. Now, if we go uh, mean on, on average, so I'm sure you, some of you are thinking, raw, I didn't hear United States. Here is the, um, the mean on average. So that's the on average. One Switzerland, Two, United States. Three, Hong Kong. Four, Australia. Five, Netherlands. Six, Denmark. Seven, Belgium. Eight, New Zealand. Nine, Sweden. Ten, Singapore. Eleven, Canada. Twelve, France. Thirteen, UK. Fourteen, Austria. Fifteen, Norway. Sixteen, Germany. Seventeen, Ireland. Eighteen, Japan. Nineteen, Italy. Twenty, China, um, Taiwan. So... The countries, some of these countries, some of these super big economies or some of these countries that have a lot of rich people, they're, they're, you see them higher up in the mean rather than the medium. But that's just some boring math stuff. So why is it that although there's so much wealth in Singapore, the majority of people, the majority of the people of Singapore are not as rich? Well, two things. One, high cost of living. Two, inequality. So inequality, we kind of hinted at it when looking at the mean difference between the mean and median wealth um, per capita. So let's look at high cost of living. Singapore has been named the world's most expensive place to, to live several times. I remember one list by like 2019, when I looked at 2019 or 2020, it was like it won five, six times in a row. Singapore being the world's most expensive place to live. And one of the main reasons for this is tax on cars. Singapore is the most expensive place to buy and to run an automobile. That's long. You don't want that. It's the third most expensive place on earth to buy clothes. So the drip is expensive there as well. However, uh, medical bills, personal care and household goods are less expensive than other places. And one of the things that I found very interesting about Singapore that contributes to what I just said was the Central Provident Fund. And now what's this? Twenty, At least 20% of your earnings 
go to man to a mandatory savers account, which is called a central provident fund. So whether you like it or not, you have twenty percent of your bread of your paycheck is going to a mandatory savers account, and your employer tops it up. This enables you to pay for things such as your pension, education, if you want to go into university or want to pay for family members' university, um, healthcare, and housing. This is a very, very uh, beneficial thing for Singaporeans because you get a very good interest rate. You get 5%, which is higher than the base rate there, which is obviously fantastic. And speak, do my research, but mainly speaking to my boy, Dr. Lee, their healthcare system is very, very good. It ranks well across every single metric you can look at. Um, you have the choice of private suppliers. And because you have a choice, you don't just go to a unified supplier like we do in NHS. Because you have the choice of you could pick where you want to go, that puts the impetus on the people who are providing medical care and healthcare, sorry, to be good. The quality is good because you're competing. Same way... Um, all the clothing brands, the phone brands, insert brand here are all competing for our pounds. Same thing with the healthcare. So that's why they have to provide the best product possible. Otherwise, you have the choice to go elsewhere. A lot of people from outside of Singapore go to Singapore because that's how good the healthcare is. And yeah, on the inequality thing, there's a thing called the Gini coefficient, which people who study economics know about. And this is simply a, uh, a curve and a graph, and it goes from zero to one. So all the values from zero to one. Zero, if your Gini coefficient is zero, that means your country is very equal. If your Gini coefficient is one, it's very unequal. So the, Gini, the higher the Gini coefficient, the less um equal your country is right and if we look at singapore uh they had a gini coefficient of in 2017 of 0.356 so now this is worse than japan the uk germany korea but it's also better than some places like united states had a one of 3.91 or 3.9 something sorry so Singapore still has work to do. The government has said that the inequality in the country is one of its top priorities to address. But yeah, I think the history so far um, from what we've seen from these governments in UAE and Singapore is they provide a great staff pack you know, if you're a new country on how to get things done. Do you know what I mean? Like Dubai had the benefit of a national resource and they used that money to flip and invested heavily into the infrastructure. Um, Singapore, they, they made the utilization of one of one of their ports and also made utilization of tax rules and incentives and investing heavily into their economy and their people. So yeah, that's it for this week's pod. That's how you do the thing. If you wanna boost your economy from the ground up, maybe in Nigeria, you manage to listen. But yeah, on to next week, people. Peace and blessings. Sports Social Podcast Network.